Have you ever seen a movie or a TV show that starts with an event that looks crazy? And maybe you're looking at what's happening. Maybe someone has bruises or something's torn up or they're in a strange place or whatever it may be. And then it'll be like, it'll go to like a black screen and say like three weeks earlier or something like that, right? And then the show or the movie or whatever, it kind of goes to this flashback where it starts off saying, this is how, this is where we're got to end up. Let's watch to see how we got there. You know, the season of Lent is really kind of like one big flashback scene for us as we go through it as a church or as an individual, because we know where it's going to end up. And in our scripture passage, Jesus is even clear to the disciples in the moment, this is where it's going to end up. And he tells them, but you got to follow me if you want to see how we get there. And this whole point is constantly pointing forward through the gospel of Mark from the very beginning, from the first verse, Mark is pointing forward saying, this is where we're going to end up. Now stay with me if you want to see how we get there. And we see that especially highlighted in our passage today. It starts off with Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea. And what's interesting here is we've talked a couple, pas a couple passages so far in the study of Mark about how Mark is regularly pointing to Rome, to the Roman Empire. Now, if you hear the name Caesarea, and if you look at how it's spelled, C-A-E-S-A-R-E-A, can you think of what that could be pointing towards? Caesar. Take off the E-A, it's, it's Caesar. So the thing about Mark and about this and that setting up very early in this is that, again, Mark is almost always pointing to Rome, but in a way where the audience or the early hearers of the Gospels know that Rome is lurking, but everyone in the story may not see it yet. It's kind of like, like a horror movie or a scary movie where perhaps the audience can see that the monster's like outside the window or over their shoulder or whatever, but the characters in the story don't know it yet. So they're just, you know, having fun, whatever, not knowing the danger that is lurking. Mark is constantly reminding us that there is this danger that is lurking. And on the way, Jesus asked his disciples a question. Perhaps starting off like what should be a really easy question, who am I? But the way he asks it is, who do people say that I am? This would be like an early form of like a parking lot meeting. You know, like, hey, what do you hear people are saying? Okay, that was funny. Come on. No? Parking lot meetings don't happen? Okay. So he says, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Now, we didn't have time in our reading last week, but if you've been following along with the weekly devotionals, we would have read that John the Baptist died, or actually flashed back to his death in our passage last week. So they say, some say John the Baptist, but they know John the Baptist is dead. The disciples are the ones that went out and buried him in our passage last week. Others say Elijah. Now, Elijah is a prophet of old, but he was a major prophet. Does anyone here remember the story of when Elijah died? He didn't die. He rose up. He has that unique distinction as a major prophet. And in the book of Malachi, it ends with saying that before the day of the Lord, Elijah will return. So while Elijah is not the correct answer for who Jesus is, it's arguably kind of close. 
because it gets closer to what Jesus' purpose is. Then the disciples, and say, still others, say, well, one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asked them, okay, enough about others. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, as Peter is never shy about speaking up first, and says, you are the Messiah. Now, the Greek word that we have here for Messiah is Christos, which can also be translated as Christ, as Christ or as Messiah. But what's super interesting here is this is the first time we have the word Christos in the Gospel of Mark since the very first verse of the very first chapter. We've seen other titles for Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, but we have not seen Christos until now. And that is the author of Mark letting us know that this is a turning point. This is a major point of revelation that we're got to apply the brakes just a little bit. We see this big turn coming up, and then we're got to accelerate right through that turn, and we're got to keep going all the way to the finish line. And then it continues in, in Mark and tradition that Jesus told them not to tell anyone about who he was, or at least not yet. Then Jesus began to teach them, because Jesus is a teacher, and the disciples, first and foremost, are students. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. I'm highlighting the verb teach because it's very important. Jesus was not predicting this. Jesus was not foretelling this. Jesus was not imagining this. He taught them what must occur. Now, we've seen before, we've seen this throughout Mark and throughout all the Gospels, really, that when Jesus explains his purpose and he explains the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God will be like, it is completely opposite from what the disciples and everyone else expects. That's one of the five things that we said were going to be the themes coming up whenever we first started Mark uh, on December 31st. Because what everyone expected or hoped the Messiah, Christos, to be was a conqueror, like King David. To use modern vernacular, they wanted the Messiah to be a winner, to be one who brought glory and prosperity. Jesus saying that he would suffer and be rejected and die is the opposite of all those things they expected or wanted the Messiah to be. And Jesus said all of this openly. And it was so shocking to the disciples that had been following him around and learning for years that Peter said, took, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus instead rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now I have to say, one of my favorite singular kind of short phrase, almost like a catchphrase in, in Scripture, is get behind me, Satan. I, it's, just, it's just, have you ever said it? It's, do you want to say it? It's kind of fun just to say. You know, I, I preached this once. This was at a previous church, and someone who was very active and involved in the church in a lot of ways said that I'm gonna, so they, they were going to remember that, and they were going to use it. 
And then the future when they were asked to volunteer for one more thing that they know they didn't have time or energy to do, they would say, get behind me, Satan. And there were multiple times that that person told me, get behind me, Satan. And I had to think, think back to this and chuckle and say, okay, I get it. I get it. Because there are times in, in my life, and this is going back years and years before that, um, where this passage stuck with me to the point that say that it's like, I don't know, like 11 o'clock at night and you know you should go to bed, but maybe you're a little hungry and you know there's like some leftover bacon or something in the fridge. And you're kind of thinking like, do I go to bed or do I get a little snack? No, I'm going to be up for another hour. Get behind me, Satan! You know, and then you should go to bed. Right? So there's things like that where you know. So that's something that's always kind of stuck with me. But think about this in the story. Imagine you're Peter for a moment. Poor Peter. Jesus asked the group, who do you say that I am? And Peter got gold stars. You are the Messiah. We have hope that Peter gets it. Peter's finally there. And moments later, Jesus is calling him Satan. I mean, talk about a roller coaster from the highest high to the lowest low. But this is all pointing to a bigger point. Because right after, get behind me, Satan, Jesus says you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. You're not looking at what God wants, you're looking at what you want. Session had a retreat last Sunday where we were beginning a process of discernment. I mentioned a little bit about it in the weekly this last Thursday as well. Discernment, simply put, is seeking to discover what God wants. And it invites and encourages and perhaps forces a little bit a shift in mindset away from what makes me happy to what would make God happy. We began by discussing the intentional focus on that is what do we believe God wants instead of thinking what do I want or what even do we want. And that's highlighted so clearly in this passage. That to follow Jesus means to reorient ourselves to a new purpose, to new goals, to a different measuring stick to see if we're accomplishing our God-given purpose. Because the measuring stick that God uses is not the one that the world teaches us to use. Think about what Jesus tells us throughout Scripture and lessons that we've already heard. The first will be last. The last will be first. That's not what the world teaches. We'll hear in a couple of weeks that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. That's not what the world teaches. We'd rather be served, right? We're constantly in these lessons that are completely opposite from what the world teaches. Jesus teaches that the Messiah must be rejected, suffer and die to be able to rise again. The world does not teach us that. But it's all in alignment with his purpose. Now, this process of discernment that Session kicked off last Sunday, we're still very early in this process. But I invited them to try a, a daily activity. And I invite you as the congregation here in person or at home to join us in this as well. Perhaps something that we can do together during this season of Lent. To set aside some intentional prayer time every day. Perhaps you can start right at 20 minutes. Maybe you need to start at 2 minutes or 30 seconds and see if we can build up. It could be in the morning. It could be over lunch. It could be right before bed. Whenever and however you're able to do it, to spend some time in prayer 
not speaking to God, but praying to hear God. To practice opening ourselves up to discovering, to discerning how God is already speaking to us. Join us in this. And as we seek for the church for PCWS to be transformed, we are acknowledging that it's not going to be transformed by me or by you, but we pray that it is transformed by Christ. Not based on human things, but on divine things. And after Jesus taught them this, not necessarily that part, but you know that whole section we were talking about. He called the crowd with his disciples, so he opened it back up. And Jesus said, if any wish to come to me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Again, this is completely paradoxical, opposite language that we have here. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. I will say back there in in verse 38, when Jesus says in this adulterous and sinful generation, I view that as a comforting reminder that for thousands of years, the generation has said, oh, this next generation just really doesn't get it. I mean, that is well steeped in, in biblical history to complain about the next generation. So we're in good, we're in good steps there. But that just that always tickles me. So when Jesus says this, so Jesus says, you know, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power, that is us really picking up speed as we are accelerating through this turn. And we can talk later when we have more time about about what that means. And Did that happen? Did it not? What would that have looked like? Remind me, maybe over fellowship, we'll talk about it. But we're really picking up speed here. And then we get to six days later. That Jesus, with Peter, James, and John, went up a high mountain, just the four of them, and there Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. Elijah we've already heard, and we've heard referenced a few times throughout Mark. So this is concrete proof. Jesus is not Elijah, because Elijah's right over there. And with Moses, so you have two major prophets, figures of history that are there with Jesus on the mountain. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For Peter did not know what to say. Do you have a friend who when no one knows what to say, they always find some way to speak up? You don't have to say any names out loud, right? But that is Peter's role in the group. It says, none of them knew what to say, so Peter just wants to start a construction project. Poor Peter. It says, they didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And I have to think if any of us were witnessing this and realizing what we were witnessing, there is a sense of fear, of awe, of, of wonder, kind of all mixed together in this biblical concept of fear, knowing that this is so unlike me. This is so unlike anything else I have seen or witnessed. It is so other. Perhaps there's a word we can come up for describing something so other, and maybe that word is holy, which is the definition of holy, something completely other. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Does that remind us of any other stories in Mark? I'm pointing at the baptismal font here. It takes us right back to Jesus being baptized. And then suddenly the disciples, the the three others there, looked around and they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. So we have here a tremendous story of revelation. And revelation basically means that it's not something that we can learn or discover on our, by ourselves on our own. Revelation is only something that God can reveal to us. So we have this moment of revelation to the disciples, to the hearers of the story. And when they say this is so great in the act of revelation, we want to stay here. The voice cries out, listen to my son, the beloved. And our reading stops here, but if we kept going, and we will keep going over the next month and a half, is the call here, what Jesus says to listen, is to follow him. Not to try to build shelter and to live on the mountaintop experiences, but to take that experience, to take that revelation, and to take it out into the world. To show the world that the way of the world is not the only way. For there is a different way, an other way, a holy way. What are you making over there? We got a case of the giggles in gray space this morning. That's me? Hold it up again. I think, I, I don't, is my hair that long? I know I've been growing it out a little bit. Uh The giggles are contagious. But what Jesus is showing is that there is a different way that is opposite of the ways of the world because the ways of the world will lead to death and this way leads to life. And this moment on this Transfiguration Sunday, a few days before Ash Wednesday, a week before the beginning of Lent, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded of the whole story. To be reminded of the finish line, knowing where it's going to end up, not just this story, but ultimately the day of the Lord finish line. And that's to prepare ourselves for the journey of how we get there. So let's take that opportunity with our our hymn of response, number 157, I Danced in the Morning, Uh, For the sake of of theology, we're going to include this in the sermon this morning. So I invite you to rise and sing number 157, I Danced in the Morning, and let this be our response and our testimony 
of the story that is to come and our willingness to follow Jesus as we get there. Amen.